In this episode, we're talking about learning to accept, adapt, and thrive in a new normal. My name is Lou Blazer. You're listening to Second Breaks. This is episode 127. Hello, hello, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Second Breaks, where we talk about thriving in our careers, no matter if it's our second, third, or fourth one. It's Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, as I record this episode. As the editor and publisher of the Second Breaks newsletter, I do a lot of reading and research. It's my job. What I'm seeing right now is that there's a lot of analysis coming out about what the other side of this crisis might look like, what new normal might look like across different industries, or what it might look like in terms of the workplace practices that we might be seeing put in place as a result of this crisis or changes within business operations. There's a lot of talk about how this crisis is accelerating trends or plans that were already in the making, but may have been taking a while to get going. So things like digital transformation or remote working or inclusion practices, things like that. While there's a lot of analysis that's happening, what's clear from everything that I'm reading is that no one really knows what all these changes are going to look like or when this is all over or even how soon we can find ourselves on the other side of this world situation because, well, no one's really been in this situation before. But what everyone agrees with is that it's not going to be business as usual when this is all over. So we keep hearing this phrase, new normal, right? We are experiencing massive shifts in businesses and society at scale and at such speed. And some of the results will be devastating. And you may already be experiencing some of these difficult transitions, or maybe you know someone who is in that situation. And yet there are opportunities here for improvement, for reinvention, for new careers and new creations. I am reminded of this stoicism phrase that we talked about last week with Brendan Hufford in episode 126, Amor Fati, or a love of fate. Everything that happens is fuel to the fire. We all have front row seats as the new future of work unfolds. And within that unfolding is an opportunity for us to seize something to carpe. Now you may be saying that's easier said than done, Lou, and I can totally relate. And that's why for me, it I find it very helpful to read about or listen to stories about people who overcame seemingly impossible situations, people who figured out a way not just to adapt to a new normal, but to thrive even as a result of it. And my guest today, Kristen Girard, is one such person. Her story shows us that we can find a new path when things decide to do other things or in the op- go in the opposite direction of what we wanted. Kristen talks about a disastrous event that happened to her just as when everything else in her life was falling into place and she was living a good life for all intents and purposes. What's worse is that the problem wasn't temporary. It was, in fact, something that she's going to have to live with for the rest of her life. And 
that appended her plans, as you can imagine, and it pushed her to uh, look for a different approach to achieving her goals and her dreams. So today you're going to hear about how she adapted to a new way of living and to a new way of working, what helped her along the way, and also the lessons that she's learned through the process, which I think are so applicable to this moment in our history. Okay, so let me step out of the way and introduce Kristen Girard. This is a straight-up interview with no interjections from me, but I'll catch up with you at the back end for some of my thoughts. I almost lost my right eye in 2013. Oh my goodness. Yeah, um, and it was a surprise. But at the same time, um, it wasn't entirely unexpected. What happened was when I was a little kid, when I was just three years old, um, I had a traumatic eye injury. Um, a piece of metal off of an axe went into my right eye. It was pretty bad. My, they had my mother picking out false eyes when I was on the surgery table. They had to move me after 12 hours of trying to save my eye to an entirely different hospital where they operated, I don't know how long, they, I was under the table for, but it was a long time. So I, they were able to save it, which is amazing. And they did a fantastic job. I was able to grow up. I had like this cool party trick. Like I would move my eye and you could see this thing move underneath my eyelid. Everybody in fifth grade thought it was like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I didn't think that much of it. I went on roller coasters, I played field hockey, I rode and fell off of many horses, wasn't an issue. And then suddenly, it's 2013, it's been a while, and uh, I'm in the middle of graduate school, I'm teaching college two-thirds time, and I'm going to graduate school so I can apply for a full-time teaching position, and I'm doing illustrating I'm teaching photography, teaching graphic design, teaching portfolio development. My life was art. And I was in this, like, this graduate school program I was in was great. Like, everything was going great. Uh, when I was at graduate school, it was a um, low residency program. And I noticed I was getting a lot of flashes in my eye, and it was really hurting. Mm. If you ever have flashes in your eye, that is a go-to-the-eye-doctor-immediately situation. You know, if it persists more than one or two. So I was basically having a little fireworks display. And whenever I would tip my head down and my eye was, it, it really, really hurt. It felt like there was um, a nail underneath my eye whenever I went to move it. And I was trying not to worry. I'm like, I, you know, I've got my ducks in a row. Life is going good. It's never been better. And uh, I had a scheduled eye doctor appointment the day I got back from school anyways. I go in. I tell the eye doctor what was going on. He looks. His eyes get big. He immediately starts calling around to see who can get me in for emergency surgery. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what I didn't know, and I learned that day, was ha found out. When I was a little kid, they had a scleral buckle put around my eye to save it. It's basically a ceramic ring. And that was failing. It was coming apart and it was undoing the original surgery site as it did. Oh. And what's really hard about scleral eye injury, so the sclera is the white part of your eye. 
it doesn't heal. It's like when you hurt a ligament in your knee and they have to basically put a whole new ligament on and then really watch the attachment points because your ligament isn't going to repair. Your sclera is the same kind of thing. So when I was a kid, what they did is some really handy stitch work and use that buckle to hold it in place. And um, I had also had a detachment of the retina when I was a kid. And I've got a couple of extra blind spots from that. But, you know, your brain adapts. I accepted that. I was like, oh, I just lose more stuff than regular people. <laughs> I can't see it anyways. It's all good. What happened in 2013 was as my eye was being torn apart, fluid was building up behind, and behind that in response. And my eye was getting swelled. And my retina was redetaching. Mm. And those flashes, that was from the retinal detachment. And the pain was from where the surgery site was coming apart. And I learned a couple of things pretty quick. Um, number one, always get a second opinion. The first guy I wanted to told me it was no big deal. Would not believe what happened to me as a kid. Complete jerk. <laughs> yeah, he, he told me that he could take care of my little issue in his chair and to stop squirming. So I went and saw a second surgeon. He had much better office manner. And he was like, yeah, 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 we could take care of this. There might be some after effects, which I think legally they have to say. Uh, and he again, actually, I thought he believed me about what happened. I did not know he did not actually believe me all the way about how severe the injury was when I was a kid. You can imagine, I brought my mother and my husband to the surgery with me. And I am on the operating table, passed out. The eye surgeon goes out into the waiting room in scrubs to find them and say to my mother, what happened to her? Oh my goodness. Yeah, and apparently he was on the phone with his mentors trying to figure out what in the world to do with me. I woke up through the painkillers and I felt like Chuck Norris had punched me in the face. My face hurt so bad through the painkillers. I was not expecting that at all. Um, and then I remember the eye doctor. And I don't, I, I, I do not know if the guy realized I was going to hear and remember this. But he goes, oh, don't rub your eye too hard. It'll pop. Oh, my goodness. Like pop out of the socket. Nope, just pop. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I later, when I was a little bit more aware, I, I asked him, like, so how did things go? And he told me that my eye is so translucent, this is not normal, you can see through it, because everything's stretched so much on the surgery site. And it looks like Frankenstein was having fun with my eye under there. And he told me that there would be no more repair work. There was nothing more that can be done for my eye. It was so bad they had to leave part of the broken scleral buckle in there. And they weren't able to close it all the way successfully. So I have a pinhole in my eye that things can get into. And it can, it's very susceptible to infection because of that. Mm -hmm. And how it left me. I mean, here I am. And then like, I'm going to graduate school. I'm teaching, not full time, but two thirds time. I have my own business I'm trying to run and the artwork to make for that. And everything came to a standstill. Did he say, 
how long it's going to take to recover or what's going to happen after you recover or what you can expect? Um, he didn't know what I should expect. They were not able to do anything to put my retina back together. I had to let it heal naturally. How long did this period last with not knowing what's going to happen to my eye? The rest of my life, actually. The worst of it was the first three months. Mm. I had to be so still. I had to sit on my couch and watch TV, which may be sounding familiar to what people are having to do now. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't go down the stairs because I was living in a second floor apartment apartment at the time and just the impact from going down the stairs would cause me to see those flashes which would mean that my retina was having trouble staying in place I had to learn how to go down the stairs backwards to minimize that bouncing because it was easier to look up and just let my feet do the work than to look down because whenever I looked down it would put, put my retina in a vulnerable position they take a long time to heal. Even now, I have to be careful. Mm. I didn't know I liked running or doing sit-ups until I learned that I would never be able to do them again without risking my life. <laughs> and I was like, gee, I'd like to go for a run. What do you mean I can't run? I never used to love to run, but now I want to. <laughs> yeah, now I'm looking at it with fond memories. Remember when I used to run like a very tired gazelle? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I had to train myself to move my whole head when I want to look because my eyes have trouble tracking back and forth because even now, and it's been seven years, my eye still gets tired and has trouble. Like going to the grocery store is really hard. I actually try to only go to grocery stores I've been to before and go to the same one all the time because if I have to go to a new one or one I'm not familiar with, I end up having a hard time working the rest of the day because the eye just gets so irritated. It's like you had to learn a new way of doing the normal stuff that you used to do. Absolutely. Had to relearn how to draw, had to relearn how to paint. And I had to accept that some things in my life were never, ever going to be the same again. And that included photography. Here I was teaching photography, loving to teach people photography. I couldn't look through the camera once without pain. Can you imagine? Here you are. You're teaching, and all of a sudden, you do the most basic thing you can't do. And I had to ask for help. I used to take great pride in my physical strength. You know, I would move things all over the place. And especially that first year, I had to be so careful. I couldn't lift anything heavy, I couldn't do any bending at the waist which doesn't seem like a big deal until you go to look in your refrigerator. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to ask students for help constantly. And the first thing I would have to tell every class, and I would have to remind them periodically, do not come up on my right side. Don't be offended if I'm looking straight ahead. I cannot look in multiple directions at the same time. So I'm going to look ahead because that's the least painful thing for me to do because it would help minimize the micro movements of my eye. I'm just imagining um, myself in your shoes. Uh, it's difficult, obviously, because I've never had experienced anything like that. Uh, but I'm just imagining how I might be reacting. And I was just wondering whether you were feeling like, you know, 
why is this happening to me? Like, you know, wh how were you feeling at that time? Or uh, were you always thinking positive or thinking at, you know, looking at the silver lining? Or were you also feeling like, were you depressed or what was going on? Yeah, a whole bunch of things. It was like this storm of emotions. On one hand, I was furious. I was so mad. How in the world could something like this happen to me now? It took me so much courage to get into graduate school just to fill out the application. And here I am just beginning. And am I going to be able to draw? And I had so much fear every day waking up, not knowing if at the end of the day, if I was going to still have my eye, especially, oh my God, those first I can't emphasize how hard those first two months are. Like what everybody's going through with the quarantine, like I have so much empathy because all of a sudden you are thrown out of your normal routine and you're stuck, like literally stuck in your house. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. And that not knowing if I was going to have my eye at the end of the day, it is one of the scariest things ever. Um, because it felt so unpredictable. Sort of like uh, what some people are feeling right now, or a lot of people are feeling right now, like, how is this going to end? Like, what's the end? Like, in your case, I was imagining like, you know, okay, I'm going to take care of myself, but how, am I going to have full use of my eye? What is going to happen? Am I going to lose it? Am I going to still have it? Or am I going to always be like this? And um, to make things a little more complicated, with me, they tend to be. <laughs> I have type 1 diabetes, which means that healing is harder anyways. So things are always going to take me extra time. And I also, when so one of the first things they tell you when you get type 1 or type 2 diabetes, if you don't take care of yourself just right, you will lose your sight. And here I am trying to take care of myself, doing the best I possibly could. I am one of the only people probably in the world who had one drink on my 21st birthday, my entire undergraduate career, because I was so dedicated that I would be the uncool kid in order to keep my health, because I knew that what mattered to me was my artwork. So is, is the losing the eyesight unrelated to the thing that happened to you? It's just like I said, uh, if you have diabetes, it's something that you have to always be um, careful? Aware of. And yeah, so it means even though, say, even though I would still have my left eye, I could lose a sight in that one too. And, and, and I'm just bringing that up because I was faced with this double whammy of immediately losing one eye and then knowing that I wasn't going to have a backup eye. But part of the anger was it's too early. I thought I had at least 10 more years before I had to worry about this. Are you kidding me? So anger was one of the things that you were feeling. Yeah, a lot of helplessness, very severe depression. And I like it was a lot like right now, like the weather's beautiful, spring, summer, you want to be outside doing stuff and you can't. And I felt like I was in a box, but I wasn't just in a box. I was in a box that kept having new slats put in it mm. so that the box kept getting smaller. And I kept feeling like I was having to squeeze into that box. And it took me a long time to realize that instead of thinking about my life as a box that I could either get in or get out of, that 
I had to start picturing things a lot more as being um, stones in a vase. And when you fill a bunch of big stones up in a vase, it looks like, oh, it's full. There's nothing else you can put in there. And that's what like all those stuff with my eyes is feeling like. And then I realized, and I saw this on the show Rizzoli and Isles, so I cannot take credit for this. And I can't remember where they got it. But Rizzoli and Isles has gotten me through a lot of stuff. I love that show. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yay. (laughs) But I remember it was Dr. Mora. And like, it was like a light clicked on for me. And I was like, wait a second, I can, I still exist in the water that can go into that vase, even with all those big stones, those things that could be hurdles, but instead they are things that help me say, okay, this is an opportunity to ask for help. This is an opportunity to say, okay. Plant A, B, C, and D are no longer options. And it looks like E might not be either, but plan F, that could work. Yeah, yeah. So I had to start relearning how to approach life. Instead of seeing life as a straight road, I had to start thinking, okay, if things are not going to work out, I have to release control of the situation, which is super hard because we all want to have so much control over everything. It's just like a natural thing. We get scared and we clamp down. Like I'm thinking about when we're all on roller coaster rides and how we're death gripping, you know, whatever handle we have, even though we're on this ride and we're on it for, you know, for fun and we intend on staying on it. It's a lot like life. We, uh, you know, hold on. But when we let go and relax and enjoy the ride and be so we can feel like the wind whipping through our hair and the exhilaration of going really fast all of a sudden it's still a little scary because we don't quite know what's going to happen. But at the same time, it's a whole lot more fun because we can lean into our curiosity and how we explore. And that was the thing I really had to learn. It took me time. Like this wasn't an instant thing. Um, It's something I'm still learning every day. How do I, how can I adapt? How can I bend so I don't break? How can I flow? And is there, if I start feeling really overwhelmed with all the health issues, what can I do to be still for a moment? Because, you know, we've got waterfalls that flow into these beautiful ponds and they're very still. And then they flow down into another waterfall. I have to take that approach so that, you know, if I'm not quite ready to go down another waterfall yet, how can I pause the journey and hang out in that pond for a little bit? I'm ready so that I go out that pond it feels like a woo roller coaster ride <laughs> we'll get back to Kristen in a second i just wanted to tell you a little bit about the other second breaks the newsletter just like this podcast the newsletter is all about what it takes to thrive in the 21st century every sunday a new issue is published with timely insights about what's really happening in the world of work especially in light of the current situation where everything is getting disrupted and there are lots of uncertainty. We need relevant information to make decisions about how best to proceed. And that's where the problem is because we are all drowning in information and data. We are way past information overload. At this point, we are in information exhaustion and it's getting harder and harder to find the signal from all the noise. So this is where the Second Breaks newsletter steps in. 
and I consider this my most important job right now, to do the research and deliver the most relevant and timely and reliable information that's available out there so you can make the right decisions for yourself and your career. So I encourage you to sign up for Second Breaks. It's free. Go to secondbreaks.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. I'm glad you said something about it taking you a while to get there because this idea of letting go and just, um, you know, this is what's happening. We cannot control it. So trying to control it is not going to help because as much as we want to, we can't, right? So, uh, but just like letting it go is so hard. I, I know speaking from experience, it's so hard. And what you said too, like when things started going crazy, it's almost like there's this part of us that automatically goes, okay, things are going crazy. What can I control? Right. And just trying to like find your stable ground. So to some degree, I guess it's uh, second nature to us, I guess, us trying to find something that we can hold on to that's stable and, and just that idea of letting go. And I was wondering, like, how did you get to that point? Like, what helped you uh, get there? Like, thinking that way? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a funny thing. I I never thought I was resilient. I actually used to think that I was incredibly weak mm. and that I was a failure because nothing worked. <laughs> I would do all kinds of things and it felt like nothing ever worked. I could never be good enough. I could never do enough. Um, and I was just, a friend had called and she had asked how I was doing. And this was only a couple weeks after the surgery. And I was very honest. Um, one thing I've learned in life that the more honest we are, the more we realize we're not really alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, we help other people see they're not alone either, which is an incredible gift. Um, So I was telling her about what, you know, what my morning had been like. And she, she gave me this wonderful gift. She said, Kristen, if I was you, I would be on the floor crying. How in the world are you so resilient? And that really set me back because resilience and Kristen were polar opposites from each other. I consider it a gift because she helped me begin to see myself in a new light. I wasn't somebody who was broken forever. And I wasn't somebody who was doomed to be wounded or doomed to fail because God handed you only what you can handle. And I'm using air quotes with that because (laughs) whenever somebody would say that saying to me, I would just want to huck a baseball in their direction <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, are you kidding me I can't handle this not what I want to hear right now yeah <laughs> at all like if like for everybody out there whoever wants to say that to anybody's going through a rough time forget it just get them a pint of Ben and Jerry's or a box of chocolates much more helpful <laughs> diabetic or not still much more helpful totally I hear you <laughs> That helped me be like, oh, and it, like it made me think, am I being resilient? Because I, I wanted to be true with myself, which was something, again, that I was in the beginning phases of learning. And I, I realized, well, I, I, I did get out of bed. I 
was trying to figure out, I was trying to teach myself how to read again at the time because I had to learn a different method for tracking because I couldn't, I used to read 400 pages in a day, mm-hmm. love to read. And now I was struggling to read like a couple pages. I was like, all right, I've got this paper due for grad school. Do I even want to be still in grad school? What am I going to do if all my worst fears come true? And I, I realized when she was talking about the res- resilience that even though I still didn't know the answer to what will I do if this thing happens, that I was still acting as if the possibility for good to happen was a thing. I was getting up. I was getting dressed. I had learned how to take a shower in a little different way to protect my eyes. I was making sure that like as soon as I could, that I was moving a little bit, like even on the couch, just kind of, you know, moving my shoulders and whatnot to get a little circulation going. And I was learning like, all right, if I want to be able to move, I learned how to tilt my head just right. But just like all that, all these little things I realized, even though I didn't know the answer yet, what would I do? So I had a lot of time to think. And I started thinking, okay, what I kept coming back to was, if I, if I go blind, what will I do then? And I would shut my eyes at almost as a, a practice run. And I realized, well, if I can't paint stories or photograph stories, then I could still tell stories. And it was the bingeting in me realizing that I actually have a little bit of storytelling in me and that I have many books that I could be writing. If I wasn't so busy painting, I would be having a good time writing. And you can still write verbally. And I, that was the first time I started having gratitude for technology. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know it now, but I know I can figure it out or that somebody else can help me figure it out. If all of a sudden I lose my eye tomorrow and the other one goes the next day, like things are figure outable. It was such a relief to have an idea of what I would do. And it was also challenging. Who am I? I have thought of myself as an artist and I was learning that. I'm a creator and it doesn't matter what I'm creating. Mm -hmm. It just matters for me, for my personal fulfillment that I am creating. So it could be a story, could be a painting. And I also started realizing what mattered most to me. Mm -hmm. To me, yes, I wanted to go running, but in the end I was still going to be Kristen if I couldn't go running. But if I couldn't create, then I wasn't going to feel like Kristen. And I realized that for me, the creating, what I valued most, and it's amazing that it took almost losing my eye to truly appreciate what it is I can do with my art, with my painting and drawing. I didn't value it in the same way before this happened. I mean, I valued it, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, undergrad, grad school, teaching it. Sure, I valued it but I didn't value it with all capital letters because it was something that came so easily to me. And I find that a lot. We tend not to value what comes easily and easily to us. I was thinking about, as you were talking about how you realized what was most important to you, there was, there was this meme that I saw about a couple of weeks ago and they said, it said that in our, in our rush to, to go back to quote unquote normal, we should maybe think about 
what parts of our normal do we want to even go back to? And um, I know it's a it's a, the opposite uh, side of what you just said, right? Because there are certain things that, y- yeah, that was normal, but maybe I don't want to go do that anymore. Maybe this part of my life is the one that's most important, and that's the one I want to go back to, not the other ones. Maybe that's where being an artist is helpful, because normal is so far from the way we're perceived. <laughs> But like, I remember in college, like I gave myself permission to be weird. You're going to get, you're going to be perceived as weird anyways for what you do. So lean into it. I found that life is more fun when we lean into the weird, the abnormal, because that's really who we are. Like normal is an average. Normal is an expectation. But when we open ourselves up to the idea of something beyond normal, all of a sudden life gets really, really interesting. A little scary, not going to lie, because normal is predictable. But when we allow unpredictability to come in, that's when innovation can happen. Mm-hmm. That's when all of a sudden we can say, well, hey, you know, we're used to reading books, but what if we listened to them? I think there's a couple industries built off that. And that was completely abnormal a couple of years ago. But now we're all like, yeah, let's go running and listen to our book. I would be remiss and the listeners will never uh, forgive me if I don't ask, how is your eye now? It's hit or miss. Some days are really good. Some days are really bad. We keep hearing nowadays Seems like all the time, every day, somebody's talking about the new normal or we have a normal behind like we were just talking about. And for me, I have had to leave all expectations of what normal looks like. Um, Just let it go. Because one day I may be capable of doing art, going to the grocery store, talking with a friend. Other days, I really can't do much. Um, I have to go back into what I call healing mode. It's basically I hibernate with Rizzolian Isles or NCIS or Bones. Those are my three go-tos. <laughs> because I keep going back to those because, one, I've seen them before and I know they're good. Um, but two, because they are, they are a constant reminder of change and that change is not a bad thing. It feels like it, but it's not. And it's really helpful on those days when I'm in pain. And it can happen for any reason. It could happen because I was trying to talk to two people at once and your head naturally wants to go back and forth and your eyes move all over the place. And mine still won't let me do that. At this point, it's been enough time that this is likely to be the standard. So there's no going back for another fixing surgery or whatever. There's nothing. No. Yeah. If anything happens to it again, I'll lose it. Um, I have a Clydesdale. We love the gallop. I've fallen off of him repeatedly. Still, even after the eye surgery, I go skiing. I, my husband even convinces me to go rock climbing with him because that is his religion. <laughs> he knows a rock climber. They're always trying to convert you to their, their calling of climbing. <laughs> um, and I'll do that even though my eye is so fragile. And the reason why I do that and I, I take these experiences um, is because I was walking outside one day, just on my way to my car, nothing crazy, just going to work, trying to teach. And I was thinking about 
do I want to ski this year, this first year after the surgery or not? Because if I fall, it could be really bad. Mm -hmm. And as I'm thinking that, I was paying attention to where I was walking, but I fell on my sidewalk. And it was just like silly thing. That wasn't a bad fall, the scheme of falls. But, you know, good bum smacking on the pavement. And it made me really think, I can either choose to live in fear of losing my eye constantly, or I can still do the things that I love to do, whether it's painting or horseback riding, and just accept that I have a few more rocks in my way that I have to flow around, and that's okay. Like when I go skiing, my husband is my spotter. He has to spot me. He has to help me get on the chairlifts because I can't look behind me anymore. I have to have faith that he is looking out for me. And when I'm riding my horse, I have to have faith that my horse does not want to run into anything any more than I want to run into anything. <laughs> like just had to learn that. And those having faith in my horse, having faith in my husband, and I had to have had to learn and it, it is a skill it's totally a skill to accept that things are not going to go as planned I'm going to have a bad eye day sometimes I'm going to have a bad diabetes day sometimes it's going to be both are bad on the same day and it's okay to take time out to take care of myself and I've had to set up my whole business with that in mind that I basically have three times the sick time that most people have scheduled into my regular business day because I need it. Kristen, thank you so much for sharing this story um, with with me, with, with us, with the listeners, because I think the more we hear about these kinds of stories these days, it helps. It helps fortify, you know, sort of like, or buck, buck us up a little bit, like, right? And, and say, okay, you know, Okay, maybe we don't know what's happening, and um, for a lot of people, the sky has already fallen for them. Like they've already lost their businesses or their jobs or whatever their savings, and so it's it's sometimes very difficult to imagine the other side. You know, even um, just these things that we keep reading now that this is the new normal or things are going to be drastically different, even after this passes, and. Sometimes it's so difficult to imagine. And so the more we hear about these kinds of stories, I think the better it is for us to kind of help us imagine our own ability to respond, right? And uh, that we have it, all of us have it in us to to do so, sort of, to react the way that you did when it happened to you, right? When, when the situation happened to you. Um, so thank you so much for sharing this story, Kristen. I so appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, we, we, you know, I, I know you said that you teach or you, you do art, but can you talk a little bit about what, what you do for a living or what your business is about? Or do you still teach or what do you, you know, this is a career podcast after all. <laughs> so what do you do for a living? Yeah. So, um, I did end up having to leave teaching college, which made me a bit sad because I loved my students. They were amazing. Uh, but I realized that my eye was not going to let me do that. So what I did was I leaned into what made me the most joyful. And for that, for me, it's painting. And when I really leaned into that joy, the world started opening up and unlocking. One of the main things I do is um, I paint horses in space. 
which sounds completely crazy, but I'm at the barn late at lot at night and there's all these stars behind him. But I've the work has a lot of meaning to it. So there's one particular painting, but it's this dark space on a canvas and there's these bright highlights all around that are galaxies. And it's about even when we feel like we are nothing but darkness, that nothing's going right. There's actually all these wonderful little things, those lights that are coming around, around the darkness. Those are actually other people saying, hey, I've been here too. You're going to make it. It's going to be okay. And within the darkness, there are all these different stars showing because even when things feel really dark, there are still sparks of light and possibility. And if we follow that, then we really blossom into who we are here to be. So what I discovered was that my why is helping people see that they matter. You matter no matter what chronic illness you live with, no matter what traumatic injury you've had, no matter how long you've lived with depression, no matter what your life circumstances are, no matter how good they might seem on the outside and you're still, ah, you really, really do matter. And your dreams matter. What you want to bring to life matters. And that all life matters. And I'm very, I like, I I am constantly trying to give the earth a hug. I need to give it a really big hug because the earth is so big. (laughs) But I keep trying uh, because there is nothing more amazing than seeing an elephant or seeing a humpback whale surface. And they matter too. And us, when we make our dreams come true, we help them make their dreams come true too. And their dreams may be of a clean ocean and being able to eat all they could possibly imagine. (laughs) You know, and it's like make beautiful songs. I love humpback whale song. It's like the best thing in the world. So my art is all about that. Swim in a clean ocean. Yes. Without plastic. (laughs) Yes. It would be amazing. So that's like the big overall thing I do with the horses in space um, to kind of just flex our imagination of who we are. And the other big thing that I'm really into is helping people see themselves with clarity and love, which is a big part of the you matter. Because I realized over the course, like when I was dealing with the eye surgery after effects, that a lot of times we don't see ourselves clearly and we don't see ourselves with a whole lot of love either. And it can be life transforming to be able to step back and see yourself clearly and say, you know what? I am lovable and I am capable of loving. And you know what? Yeah, I really am cool. Paint all over me and all. It's pretty awesome. So I do portraits to help people see so people can see themselves in the amazing light I see them in. One last question before I let you go. Where can we find you online? So you can check out my artwork at gerardillustration.com, and that's Gerard with a G-I. And the best places to find me on social are on Instagram at Gerard Illustration and on Facebook at my Gerard Illustration page. And I am venturing into the YouTube sphere, and it'll be the Kristen Gerard channel. I'm wow. excited scared because it's totally new. <laughs> Kristen, thank you so much. I so appreciate you sharing your personal story with me today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. And I love your podcast. It's so cool. Thank you. 
One of the things that I took away from Kristen's story is that we we all have it in us to be resilient. We may not think that we are, just like Kristen didn't think that she was. And sometimes we need a mirror or someone else to reflect back to us, you know, the things that we are doing uh, where we are already helping ourselves. So we all have this resilient muscle. And having said that, sometimes we do need a nudge uh, to exercise that muscle. And I hope that Kristen's story provided plenty of gentle nudges for you, just as it did for me. For the show notes and all the links, head on over to secondbreaks.com forward slash podcast. On the show notes are the links to where you can find Kristen online and also a link to that painting that she was talking about towards the end of the interview. Next week, we tackle the topic of self-doubt, this very inconvenient thought or feeling that happens just as when we're getting ready to seize the moment, as many of us are doing right now. And the last thing we need are these gremlin voices in our heads. But there they are. What do we do? And I'm so excited to be exploring this topic with Tanya Geisler, whose life's work is all about tackling the imposter complex. The best way to not miss that episode and all future episodes is to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that using the app that you're using right now to listen to this episode. Or if you happen to be on the website, right around the audio player, you're going to see some options for podcast apps. This season, season three, is all about career continuity and resilience. So if you have questions about this topic, send me an email, lou at secondbreaks.com, and I'll do my best to address those questions in future episodes. One last ask, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who may benefit from the conversations that we're having this season. I'm going to thank you for it. Okay, I'll be back next week. In the meanwhile, be safe. And keep on making your debt, my friend. Cool beans. <laughs>